Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 45. And we got a lot of news today, and we also have an interview with one Josh Brown, who's just written a book on parsing in Swift, parsing JSON in Swift, that is. Uh, but first, we're going to get to some news items. So this, this may be something Argo would have a lot to say about, but uh, there was a recent article, a recent press release from Apple stating that the IAD network is going to be shut down in June. Yeah, it was kind of interesting how this went down. Like originally, there were some rumors that the sales team was going to be going away for IAD and it was going to be a self-serve um, portal. Uh, that was like the first round of news and people were like, hmm, that's interesting. Things are changing with, with IAD. And I think kind of in the originally IAD was just a network for ads in your apps and it gradually grew to do the um, the ads for Apple Music. Uh as well as for the news app that they, they came out with iOS 9. Um, but then just this uh, Friday, they said that the the app ad network part will be shutting down in June. Um, so it seems like uh, Apple has tried. Uh, they, they I remember when iAd came out, they bought some company for you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Google bought a different one. And Google is going super strong now. And I guess Apple's kind of strategy of being like this premium uh, ad network didn't just didn't work out for them. I, I guess I originally like the buy-in was like $500,000 and they were always struggling to get people to, to buy in and they gradually lowered it. And I guess they've just given up on, on that pursuit. Well, advertising is Google's core business model. So it's not surprising that they've been more successful at it. Yeah. Uh, it, it is kind of disappointing that Apple wasn't able to to make it work, and you know I I, I don't know if they've stated what's going to happen to apps that have iAd today. Is it just that ads are not going to show up anymore after June if you don't update your app? Yeah, I assume that's what's going to happen, uh, which really is kind of a of a of a bummer if you ask me uh because it can take users a long time to to update to the latest version i know a couple years ago we uh switched our apps over were were supported mostly by ads and we switched to not use the old network we were using uh and some other company has acquired this company that went out of business that was doing my old uh, ad network and like I said, we switched like two or three years ago, and to this day, we still get like a couple hundred bucks uh, every month uh, from people who are still on versions of our app who are still uh, hitting that old ad network. So it, it kind of stinks if if like your the only source of your your revenue is from iAds, which I think there are you know a fairly decent amount of apps that are that way. I think David Smith may have a lot of iAd based apps so he's probably scrambling right now which is no fun uh but hopefully he'll find something better and other people will too we actually just switched to or added iad back into our apps in beginning of january and uh we we're seeing some pretty pretty good returns from it uh but it's going away now and the, the way we have it set up now there's just a bunch of other ad networks behind it so that's 
no no big deal, but it can be a really annoying thing if that's the only thing you were using. Yeah, you definitely would have to take a more hybrid approach, not just a pure only Apple framework approach if you're going to be ad supported now. Yeah, when we got burned by our first that first ad network, I'm not sure if I've told that story on the podcast before. Uh, maybe I have, um, but uh, the it seems like the the proper approach to take these days, especially if you get burned by one, that is to kind of mediate between a bunch of different ad networks. And um, AdMob is a really good way to do that. They have mediation, and then the one the way the way we do it is we use uh, Twitter's. Uh, Mopub, which is part of Fabric, uh, to mediate as well. But those are both really good choices uh, to to mediate and kind of cover your bases a little bit more if, if you have ads in your apps or are planning on putting ads in your apps. But there is lots more news this week. Uh, we got like this giant... Uh, well, first of all, we got a beta release, and then like 10 minutes later... Like, there's all these new sections on Apple's website about iOS 9.3 and this education preview thing, which is seemed really weird to me. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, it's still kind of light on the details, but it has some really intriguing features. One that we've been asking for for a lot as users of iOS is the ability to have multiple profiles to be able to sign in as a different user on the same device and have it tailored, have your data right there when you need it uh so that's actually a feature that's available in the education preview well yeah there's two things that came out there was the ios 9.3 beta and then the education preview which i think we still just have a website for that i'm not sure if that's actually been released you guys know yeah as far as i know it's just uh some marketing materials i don't know if we have access to anything yet it kind of feels like an enterprise distribution scenario uh you know maybe a different flavor of an enterprise distribution but the details are still a little bit limited the la school system for that or something like that yeah it's, it's probably a private channel yeah i could see it being a whole another developer account like like enterprise versus the app store yeah there's lots of cool stuff in there though the other thing that seemed really cool to me i forget what they called it but it's just like a remote view thing where you can see what are, what your students are doing on their iPads, but it seems essentially like screen sharing or VNC for for iOS, which would be really useful uh, as a tech support tool or just kind of as a administrative tool for people who do crazy productivity stuff on their iOS devices. I really want to see that in, in regular iOS, not just in this uh, education preview thing. Yeah, there's there's the ability to launch and lock apps um, remotely, or reset passwords uh, for students in the classroom, share student work on the big screen. Yeah, it's there's a lot of really nice features in there. May not be applicable to everyone, but you know there's definitely some scenarios I can think of outside of the app store or outside of the the classroom. Well, I mean, Apple already has the family sharing stuff that they kind of did a push for in iOS 8 or 9 where you can link all your stuff together and have a, a family. So it seems like most of these features are like a perfect fit for that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, we they did include a few other things for 9.3, uh, more than we probably would have expected. One of the new features is Night Shift. You guys know anything about that? 
using it right now. And uh, so it goes with this theory that the blue light that's caused that comes out of LEDs and artificial light from your screens is something that uh, inhibits proper sleep patterns. And so what happens is the night shift mode will gradually tune out the blue color on your screen. So everything looks kind of orangish and uh, it's, it's a little jarring at first, but you get used to it, I guess. I'm actually using it on my Mac right now, but it's, it's in the form of uh, flux, which was a app that was released earlier this year, but users had to sideload that and Apple quickly put the kibosh on that and said, Hey, you can't encourage your users to sideload apps. Well, and they did, they had done it kind of an interesting way too. They, instead of like saying, Hey, go download the source and run this on your device. They basically had like a wrapper and like a static library. So you didn't get the code, but you could download it and then sideload it onto your app, which Apple is like, this really is against the, uh, the intent of, you know, allowing anyone to deploy code to their device. It's, it's to get people developing. So it seems like they had a private conversation with them and flux went away. Maybe they told them, Hey, we're working on this night shift thing. So it'll be available for everybody soon. Although, uh, I did see that the flux people posted a response to flux. Did you guys see this? No, I did. It was it was something about them trying to petition Apple to now let Flux be sold on the App Store. Yeah, they basically were like, give us the APIs that you guys can use that were private uh, APIs to so that we could build Flux for the App Store, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it didn't seem like a completely... They weren't completely hunky-dory with, with A, with Apple's version of, of Flux or or be with kind of the the way they went about it with uh, telling them that they couldn't distribute flux the way they were and 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 then kind of the aftermath of that yeah the lesson i took out of this was that if you want a feature in ios just release a binary and tell your users to sideload until apple tells you to stop <laughs> seems like it could be a, a good solution Let's see, what else did they include in 9.3? Well, one other thing that was, before we talk about that, one other thing that was interesting, uh, well, I guess this is related, uh, is have you guys checked out the SDKs uh, for 9.3 at all? They've dropped all of the private frameworks uh, from the SDK distributions. Oh, so you can't necessarily run like a... Uh header generating program against it anymore or, or what? I think that's, yeah, I think that's essentially what they've done. So it makes your scheme a little bit harder, Sam, uh, to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since there aren't those private frameworks to write against. So they kind of are like hedging off other people kind of using your strategy to uh, get their own apps on there. But it's kind of a, a bummer. I think you could technically still call out to private frameworks you just have to do like uh load them dynamically rather than like having the headers generated for you and all that good stuff uh but yeah it's 
I thought that was an interesting change of events for 9.3. Yeah, it's kind of a shame, really. I think that hurts enterprise developers that don't necessarily distribute on the App Store and might need a more uh, integrated solution for maybe some of their their things. What kind of crazy stuff for enterprise developers doing? I'm intrigued. Like, what would, what would they have <laughs> I, to be able to do? <laughs> I could imagine, you know, um, say employees with with iPhones strapped to their wrists or something, and they're walking around with special hardware attached to the phone as well. Hmm. I don't know. It's just kind of off the shelf or off the wall there. Yeah. I could see there being something like that where you'd need a private framework. But yeah, I just thought that was a interesting change of things. What else was new in 9.3? They added uh, passwords or Touch ID to keep your notes private. Hmm. That seems like a interesting little step towards having a multi-user experience. No, I think it also I you know, they probably found that a lot of people were storing like passwords and other you know, confidential information and notes that A, aren't locked, and B, get synced over iCloud. Uh, Very so true. I, you know, I think it's probably a necessary step just to keep users safe. Or use a password manager. Well, you couldn't even put passwords on Notes before. Now you can. I think Notes is getting to the point where it's like a better way to to take notes or draw images or anything like that compared to like Evernote or some of those other note-taking services. I think Apple's almost there. It may already be there for a lot of people. I don't use any of those services. I just use notes. I used to use Evernote, but anymore its UI is so cluttered and hard to use. I use a couple of different markdown editors just for something simple and uh, easy writing, uh, like Simul, which is an app that we've covered before but you know i often use notes uh, for taking notes during meetings and you know sometimes i really don't want those notes to be easily accessible so i like the idea of having them password protected or uh, protected by touch id yeah well i think you know if apple wants those apps to be used for in the enterprise they need to take steps like yeah. this. So I, I think it's a good move for them. Uh, there were a couple other minor updates. There's uh, some refinement to the news to make it more personalized. Uh, do you guys use the news app at all? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll admit that I look at the home screen every now and then uh, and look at some of the news titles that comes up. They're often not things I'm interested in. I'm not sure what the algorithm is to pick the news to show me because they aren't the sources that I picked. I I tried it out a lot in the beta, and then anymore, that screen is just something that I accidentally get to when I swipe left too far. I still don't even know how to get to note, to the news app. I've never accidentally triggered it or anything. I I think I opened it one time like during one of the betas, but I haven't even opened it up. But didn't they? Wasn't there some announcement that like uh, some of the statistics that Apple was giving people were were really messed up? That came out like right before this new improved version of of news. 
came out. I thought I saw that. I do remember something about that. I think it was, is it over-reporting things? Yeah, so it, it seems like they kind of released that to bury it with all these cool new features. <laughs> Which may not be a bad idea for that, from them. Yeah, so what, one thing that I noticed about the new SDK, and this affects me more at my day job, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it requires El Capitan now to run Xcode. Again, we're, I'm in the same situation as I was in last year where I can't run the latest beta. That's a bummer. Yeah. Although we do have a better commitment from our desktop guys, but it's still going to hurt for a while. Well, good luck. <laughs> yeah. And I know a lot of other developers that are in uh, big enterprise shops are faced with the same problem where you know, Macs are always second class and it's not always easy for their desktop groups to keep them up on the latest and greatest. Uh, so I don't think it definitely I, hard. I don't think it has anything to do with the Macs being second class. I think it's just the nature of the desktop engineering groups having to verify such a wide variety of software. There's encryption software and virus scanning and VPN and various other things that they have to make sure run on the platform. I think they have the same delays on Windows. It's just uh, we get updates on Mac on an annual basis. Yeah, they're used to that life cycle of, all right, so a new version of Windows that everyone decides is enterprise ready comes out once every five to seven to 10 years. I mean, a lot of people jump from like XP to Windows 7 and they're like eight, nine, wait, 10, what? No, we're not using any of that stuff, so... Yeah, it's a it's a lot different cycle, and there's so pr most of the time so many fewer users. It doesn't make sense to. Yeah, I think you know Apple just assumes everybody can update quickly, and I I think historically that may have been true, but in the enterprise, it's there's more hurdles there. Yeah, it's a different story there. Let's see, uh, we also got a. Uh, an update to HealthKit in 9.3. I think it's mostly user-facing. I don't know if there's any uh, new metrics or anything, but there's an updated dashboard and the ability to discover new HealthKit apps uh, from within HealthKit. And there are also some updates to CarPlay. Uh, I don't know if you guys have CarPlay or not. Mm -mm. Not I. My favorite 9.3 edition, uh, have you guys installed it on your devices yet? Any of them? I haven't. Have you, what? Sam? What is it? 9.3? Yeah, I do. Did you use the new provision, or not provisioning profile? Is that what it is? The new... Uh... Oh, it's a provisioning profile to get beta updates? Yeah, there's you basically, kind of like uh, your Apple Watch beta updates used to be, or they still are, I guess but you install this profile and it just updates over the air. You don't have to do the whole rigmarole of download the whole update and then update on your computer to get to the beta. So yeah, was, I just went old really school. Nice. Oh, you went old school? I did. Well, next time a beta comes out, uh, that seems like it's a way easier way to do it. So 
check it out. You just install the profile and then it in your update it says, hey look, there's a new update available. To some degree that's how the watch updates work, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's like the same thing that's going on there, except for uh, the they had to do it on the watch because updating on the watch is already enough of a, a pain in the butt. You have to like have it on the charger and all that stuff. Oh. Yeah, I still have not updated my watch, and just from having the the last set of betas on my watch, I'm hesitant to do so. Yeah, I'm. I, I've not installed it on my watch. I just got it on my phone. I can use my my fancy uh, night shift stuff, and it seems it seems pretty quick and uh, not not very buggy. Although there's already been one bug fix update, like after a couple days, which is really out of the ordinary for a iOS beta release. Normally they really stick to that, like at least a two week cycle or so. For doing new updates so it must have been a good one <laughs> whatever it was yeah there was a it was a real fast turnaround this time it was like three days later so google's trying to keep up a little bit with all these midstream mid-year updates yeah they had an announcement earlier this week uh, they've now finally added promo codes for apps uh, for the google play store uh, but one of the interesting things about this is they've also added it for in-app products so um, we still don't have that for iOS apps so you can give out a promo code for a paid app but you can't give out promo codes for in-app purchases which is somewhat limiting yeah I didn't realize that that was an issue I haven't really done a lot of paid apps yeah so if you wanted somebody to review an app that's you know free but with an app purchase uh, you don't really have an option to do that and we've also we've had scenarios where um you know, take an enterprise scenario if you have an enterprise that wants to buy 500 copies of an app for their employees but it is unlocked with an in-app purchase i don't think you have an option really uh you know to bulk buy uh those in-app purchases i guess there's you could do a test flight beta these days and in-app purchases, I think, use the Apple Sandbox if you wanted to do that now. But that's, I mean, that's not really a, a good solution for doing promo codes, I don't think, for an in-app purchase. Yeah. I, I mean... <laughs> and uh, It's a decent solution for getting reviews, at least. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, if you've got an app that prize or schools, you know, selling in bulk... Uh, but you're using in-app purchases. It's, um, you know, I'm really hopeful that with Google making this move, that Apple will follow suit and offer promo codes for in-app as well. Uh, Google also offers 500 promo codes every quarter per app, uh, which right now we're 100 promo codes per version, depending on how often you release. I don't know which one's better. You can also uh, uh, access a promo code via URL, so they have a nice little way of, if you want to generate URLs for people to click on to get your promo code, or the get the app with the promo code. 
Yeah, you'd have to release your app a lot to try to beat that 500 a quarter promo code limit. Yeah, and I'm not really sure what the rationale for the limitations of 100 uh, promo codes is. I guess I I don't know. I guess they just picked the number. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like the promo codes are I would imagine are going to skirt around you know Apple and Google getting their cut of the of the revenue. So they're not going to want too many promo codes. But yeah, otherwise I really don't know what what the rationale is for for limiting it at all is. It seems like a good enough rationale just to cut that off. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you need 500 either, but uh, out of a quarter, I don't know. If you're going to do giveaways, maybe. Yeah. Let's see. There was one other, you know, not necessarily technical topics that came up this week, but something that uh, our listeners may be interested in is uh, you, uh, Bill, in New York City, or New York State, to ban cell phones that can't be decrypted by the manufacturer. You guys hear about that? It's a hot topic lately. And <laughs> you can quote Benjamin Franklin if you like and say that if you give up your liberty in trade for security, you end up with neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like Tim Cook ha- seems to have users' backs on this one. He's He's been very uh, upfront about having encryption backdoors uh, with, the, with the government. I think he met with, was it Obama or maybe just White House staff or something recently? It was like, no, you need to not do this. And I'm not really hearing any of that from Google, which is really weird. Because I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like, iOS and the latest version of of Android kind of have the same uh, in, encryption. You essentially have a password that's only ever stored, or it's not stored anywhere, uh, and you can encrypt your device. You can't, there's no like, I forgot my encryption password, uh, call a friend and they'll unlock your phone for you. You're, you're, you're done if you encrypt it in. Well, the new Nexus phones both have a fingerprint sensor, so I imagine they've got some kind of secure enclave because they also have a version of Apple Pay that, that works the same way. Well, but the, the secure enclave doesn't have anything to do with the, the encryption we're talking about. They may store like the hash of your password in there to be able to or the the key in there to be able to to decrypt it, but I thought the whole whole thing was it was there was no keys that were stored on the servers that could decrypt things. Which, with the way the encryption used to work, um, Apple could provide like a decryption of your of your phone if law enforcement asked for it. But they changed, and and Google did too. To, to not having that key be on any servers anywhere. It's just the user who has it. Yeah. Okay. So to, to be clear about this, the, the argument 
for this bill is so law enforcement can work with the manufacturer to unlock a phone and get to data you know with the intent of aiding victims or helping solve crimes you know i'm sure um i'm, I'm sure there's legitimate use cases here in terms of where it could be used for good uh, but anytime you put in a back door like this you also open up the opportunity for uh, it to be abused uh, by yeah. criminals or or um, you know anybody nefarious so well and even criminals have the fifth amendment too you shouldn't have to be able to then take your phone and and have you like incriminate yourself right so it seems like a bad idea you know i think you know currently even apple can't decrypt your phone uh, which is the point of this bill and i i think that's a good thing i think trusting google or apple or anybody with your data is questionable you know they may be more trustworthy than others but still you know there's you potentially have very sensitive data on your phone, health records, um, you know, just personal information that shouldn't be shared or shouldn't be accessible by others. So, you know, I, I think Apple's gone in favor of protecting civil liberties and privacy. And, you know, personally, I think that's the right way to go. I'll second that. Yeah, it seems like seems like the right way to go i'm just I, I don't get why everyone keeps just talking about apple with this because i thought it was the same with android and ios i believe you're correct so if this bill were the past that means in the state of new york uh, iphones and probably a decent number of android phones if not all of them could not be sold in the state of new york and i think there's a fairly severe uh, penalty it's like $3,700 or it's something like that. It's crazy. $2,500 per device. you sell one. $2,500 per device? Yes. So I think we're going to probably see some $3,200 iPhones if this passes. <laughs> or a lot of people going into Jersey to buy yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's what people will well, actually I think do. But Apple the, will be like... The argument is it'll actually drive commerce out of the state. Yeah, the the hope is that Apple would not uh, succumb and create a backdoor. I don't see them doing that. They're they're very strong on their user privacy stance. Google, I don't know. They may do things differently, but I mean, if they do things differently, it's going to take them a year and a half to get it on all the phones, anyway. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what happens. That's, that's if they're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing that I, I saw people talking about with, with this uh, subject in the in the whole pleading the fifth thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, law enforcement can uh, forcibly take your fingerprint to unlock your phone if they, whatever, bring you in or pull you over or anything like that. So if you have Touch ID enabled and you don't want law enforcement to be able to get in your phone... You need to restart it. <laughs> I just thought that was a a funny thing that uh, people were, were bringing up, but that would force you to have to enter your password, which you can't uh, be forced to give up. Wouldn't they at least need a warrant for that kind of thing? Uh, I don't think so. 
probable cause yeah. is all I think. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely not lawyers on this show. Yes. I know they can they can I know they can poke around on your phone and try to unlock it. And if they get in, they get in. Mm -hmm. but, and I think they can even compel you to open your phone if they have a warrant. But I, I'm not 100% on that. I think. All right, last one. You can, you, they can make you put your, give them your fingerprint essentially to do that. So they can, they can do that, but they can't make you give them your password, I believe. Because that's, that's your Fifth Amendment, right? It reminds me of this video I saw where this guy was sleeping in his bed and his girlfriend was trying to use his fingers to unlock his phone so she could look at it. And then, <laughs> and then as soon as uh, she left the room in frustration, he uh, gets up, pulls off his sock and uses his toe to unlock his phone. Nice. Well, speaking of frustration, we have uh, uh, Josh here of Roadfight Software to talk about uh, his his new book. So why don't we do that now? Hey, tonight we're joined by Josh Brown. Uh, he's been on the podcast before, and tonight he's joining us again to talk about a new book that'll be published about the time this podcast comes out called Parsing JSON and Swift. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for Good joining us. You. So, Josh, uh, go into a little bit on your background for the listeners that haven't been with us so long. Sure. So I've been doing iOS development for about six years now, and I've been programming with Swift about since it came out. Um, the day that it was announced at WWDC, I downloaded Xcode and uh, started playing around with it, and I've built a few apps in it for clients. Um, I've added it to Objective-C apps and uh, spent a good deal of time with it over the last couple of years. You must have a lot of razor cuts on your fingers playing with this thing. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yep, it's, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm living on the bleeding edge. So you've written a book about JSON parsing. What possessed you to write a book? <laughs> That's a good question. So, um, gosh, I don't know how this started, but I, I guess I'm just really interested in teaching people, and I've always enjoyed working with younger developers, especially when I'd been at a client for a while, maybe a few years, and um, someone new came onto the team. I always enjoyed helping them get started, get set up, learn the language, learn the, the process of how we're doing development, things like that. So I really enjoy teaching, and writing a book is a way for me to teach lots of people without having to be present there um, with everyone. So um, I, I wanted to write something that I could use, that, that I could teach people with. And um, this was a topic that came up over and over again as I did some research. So um, that's why I wrote this one specifically. Okay, so what, what is the book exactly about? Yeah, so it's called Parsing JSON and Swift, and it's about parsing JSON and Swift. Um, but <laughs> but it's, it's more about um, taking your JSON and turning it into Swift types and then going a step further and turning those Swift types into model objects. And then on top of that, um, 
it gives a few best practices for what to do, not only when parsing JSON in Swift, but doing Swift development in general. And on top of that, um, it, it goes into unit testing as well, because I think it's important if you're going to write a JSON parser in Swift, you want it to be tested well and to know that it's stable and that it's going to work as expected and continue to serve you well in the future. So those are, I guess, the, the broader uh, points that it covers in the book. That's cool. So you write your own JSON parser in, through the course of the book? Right, exactly. Yep. Okay, does it have a cool name or is, is that a spoiler? <laughs> you have to get the book to find alert. out. Spoiler uh, alert. Ring the spoiler bell. Um, it's called JSON parser, so it's not that cool. <laughs> Seems like a really useful, good, strong name. Oh, yeah. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so just about any iOS app that talks to a web service these days has to deal with JSON. Right, and that's... And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book specifically because I find myself parsing JSON in a lot of the apps that I write. And especially when I first started out, it was difficult um, because JSON is very loose about types and about values being there or not and things like that, whereas Swift is pretty strict. Um, and so it's a little bit tricky to uh, get them to talk nicely to each other. So. Um, since this is something that I use a lot in my apps and that I know a lot of other people do in their apps, um, I wanted to write something that would help a wide number of people with a wide yeah. number of problems. Yeah, I think when uh, when Swift was announced, you know, the, the promise was it was going to be easier, less code, faster. And one of the first things I did was try and use it on a project and talk to a web service. And... <laughs> From there, try and parse JSON, and it was kind of the opposite experience. It was, it was clunky. It was mm -hmm. a lot of code, a lot of nested code, and just just felt ugly and verbose. Right. Right, and that's definitely how it was in the early days of Swift, especially in 1.0 and 1.1. Um, parsing JSON often required a bunch of nested conditionals and things that um, were just, yeah, downright ugly. Um, it, it made for bad code, um, hard to read and hard to understand. And um, so, so that's, I guess, another reason that I wrote the book um, because it doesn't have to be that way anymore. But still, a lot of times people think that that's how they have to do it, that they have to have all of these nested conditionals. And um, like I said, that's, that's no long, longer the case as of Swift 1.2. Um, you don't have to nest so much. You don't have to build the big pyramid of doom anymore. So what was it like writing a book for a language that is constantly changing while you're writing it? <laughs> uh, it was interesting. Um, actually, though, um, it, it hasn't been all that difficult for me because um, I've mostly been working in Swift 1.1, which is um, still current today. So... Um, yeah, it, it's. Um, I'm expecting to have to make some changes soon when Swift 2.2 is released, and especially um, when Swift 3 comes out. I think there will be a lot of bigger changes, but um, so far it actually hasn't been all that bad. Um, I think mainly because I haven't been writing it for for too long and over any large changes in the language. Did you say you were working in 
1.1 or 2.1? 2.1 is what I meant. Okay. If I said 1.1, that's that's not what I meant. Yeah, 1.1 one, one would be very painful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm sure you've asked this, been asked this question before, but what about third-party libraries for JSON parsing? Are there ones that you recommend? Yeah, so... Um, in the book, I actually avoid getting into third-party libraries. Um, they're not discussed at all in the book um, because I think in the old days when, when you were basically required to build this pyramid of doom and a bunch of nested conditionals, um, a third-party library back then made a lot more sense. Um, I think they still have some value today and in some specific situations they're valuable, but a lot of times I find that it's okay to just do Swift using, or do JSON parsing in Swift using the native frameworks. Um, NSJSON serialization is great. It um, quickly transforms your JSON into Swift types. And from there, you you need to do some casting, but um, it's it's really not that much more code than what a third-party library requires. That being said, um, I, I do get that question a lot from readers. And so what I've told them is to take it kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I just recently added a, a new video um, to the book or one of the packages that goes with the book um, where I talked about when you might want to use a third-party framework um, because I think there are some cases where they are really valuable. Um, and as an example, if you're traversing an object graph um, in your JSON where you're, you're going down multiple layers to try to get just a single value out of it. I think in those situations, it makes a lot of sense. Or maybe you have an array um, in your JSON and you really only need the one object that's in the array. Um, in those sorts of situations, sometimes it's easier to do um, JSON parsing with a third-party library. So does the book teach you to write a general purpose parser or is it more geared towards what your uh, back end is going to give out to you? Um, so it's kind of general purpose. Um, what, what the book does is it takes you through parsing um, the JSON response from the GitHub API. And so along the way, it sort of teaches you, um, you know, how to do the transformation from JSON into Swift types and how to um, transform those Swift types into model objects. So for example, since GitHub has repositories, it um, shows you how to create this repository model object. Um, so it's the book is kind of specific to that API, but um, of course the principles apply to um, any sort of JSON parsing that you would do. Okay, so I'd be able to take this code that I come out of the book with and then apply it to my own API without any changes or would I need to modify? So you'd, you'd need to modify it somewhat um, because there's in the book you create this um, repository model object, for example. And if you're parsing um, you know, some, some different API that doesn't have a repository object in it, then that, that specific object doesn't make sense for you. So there are some tweaks that you'd want to do um, to the names of things and the properties and, and things like that. But the general structure, I guess, could stay the same. So the book isn't really about 
building a JSON parsing framework. It's right. about solving that that common problem right. without relying on a framework. Yes, exactly. I think one of the things I liked about the book is that you walk a reader through solving problems and implementing a solution in Swift in the context of solving a real-world problem of parsing JSON, but mm -hmm. the the topics can apply to really anything with the unit testing and you know, things like using guard statements versus if let optional binding. So I, I think for anybody who's learning Swift, whether they're trying to parse JSON or not, it's a, a valuable read. Yeah, and that's that's I guess what I was trying to communicate at the beginning. Um, I think a lot of the principles in the book apply not only to parsing JSON in Swift, but to just writing code in Swift and um, things like the guard statements and unit testing. Um, another thing we talk about in the book is increasing uh, clarity in your code by using type alias. So in the book, um, we, we create a type alias for, um, it's called JSON dictionary. Um, and that maps to a, a string in any object dictionary. And so I think there are cases where doing something like a type alias for a type like that can make it a lot more clear what your code is doing. Um, in that specific example in the book, it removes an extra set of square brackets um, that you get when you have an array of dictionaries in your JSON. And to me, that makes it so much more clear to see okay, this is an array of dictionaries when, when there's only one set of square brackets around it. Excellent. So now that you've completed the book, uh, do you have plans uh, for a follow-up book or anything else we should be looking out for in the future? Parsing soap in Swift? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that one's going to happen, at least not from me. Um, <laughs> XML RPC? <laughs> yeah, I don't... Um, I don't have any specific plans. Um, I would like to do more with this book specifically. Um, I kind of mentioned earlier, um, I know that Swift 2.2 is coming out this spring and Swift 3 in the fall. So I think I'm going to um, focus on continuing to develop this book and update it with um, new content as well as um, just making it compatible with the latest version of the language. So um, I'm not sure if... Uh, I guess I'll say I really enjoyed writing the book and I would like to do another book at some point, but at this point, I don't know what the topic would be or, or who the target audience would be or anything other than um, iOS developers. I've, I've sort of decided that I enjoy um, teaching iOS development and so iOS developers are gonna benefit most from the things I write and teach. Um, but past that, yeah, I don't, I don't have any specific plans to do anything. So for our listeners who want to get a copy of the book, where can they find it? Yeah, it's at, it's on my website, which is uh, roadfiresoftware.com, and there's a link at the top called Parsing JSON in Swift. Um, and that brings me to another point. Um, I wanted to offer uh, the listeners here a promo code so you can get it for 10% off. So. If you use the promo code shared instance, um, you can get the book or any edition of the book for 10% off. Very cool. We'll be sure to have that in the show notes as well.
Excellent. Sounds good. And for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with uh, Roadfire software, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Roadfire Software is my company, and I we mainly do consulting work, um, although recently have gotten into um, doing some workshops and, well, as you know, this book. Um, but the company, um, I actually started the company about uh, six years ago now to do iOS development because I wanted to kind of go off on my own and just focus solely on doing iOS development. So that's my company. Um, like I said, we do consulting and now a little bit of products as well. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to share? Or did we cover everything? I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Great. Well, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you? And, uh, and thanks again for joining us on the show. Sure. Yeah. So you can find out more about me um, through my website, roadfiresoftware.com, um, or I'm also on Twitter at JT Brown, and I'd be happy to talk to you about the book or anything else about iOS development. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Thanks a lot. Uh, why, don't, uh, why doesn't everyone else uh, go over where we can find them, too? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at AJ Robinson. And I'm on Twitter as well, at Sam Corder. I'm at Alex Argo on Twitter. And the podcast is at Shared Inst. We also have an email account that we love hearing feedback from you guys from. It's sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. And you can now join us on our own Slack team at chat.sharedinstance.com. That's only been up for a week, and uh, apologize to our listeners that tried to get in early and the sign-up form wasn't working. That should be resolved now. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you again, Josh. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, we'll see you next week.